everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathan, and today I'm sitting down with Dr. France A. Cordova, an experienced leader in science, engineering, and education with more than three decades of experience at universities and national labs. She served in five presidential administrations, both Democratic and Republican. She is an internationally recognized astrophysicist for her contributions in space research and instrumentation. Cordova was the 14th director of the National Science Foundation, a presidential-appointed, Senate-confirmed executive position. During this time at NSF, to broaden STEM participation from traditionally underrepresented groups, she launched NSF Includes. Today, seven other government agencies, including NASA and NIH, have joined Includes. Previously, Cordova served as NASA's chief scientist, representing NASA to the larger scientific community. She was the youngest person and first woman to serve in this role, and was awarded the agency's highest honor, the Distinguished Service Medal. So Dr. Cordova, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really an honor to sit down and have a conversation with you. Well, thank you, Nathan. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I'd like to start this conversation just by um, saying you have so many accomplishments in your life, so many different roles that, that you've played. Um, and there were just so many other things I, I could have mentioned in your introduction as well. Um, but I, I just like to ask if you could start by telling me something about yourself that's not mentioned in your resume. What's something that not as many people know about Dr. Cordova? Well, pretty much by now I'm of, of an age that almost everything has been mentioned at some time. <laughs> but I, I think the uh, thing that most people would not know is that I was the oldest of 12 children. And I was also in college a humanities major. I majored in English literature and then switched to science after college. And so what prompted that, that switch to science then? I think that I was always interested, very interested in science from the time I was a little girl, but there was just in my generation no encouragement for women to go into science. There were no scientists in the family, and my teachers in school did not encourage women to pursue science. Uh, it was just not part of the expectations of what women would become. And so when when I went to college, I, I had really enjoyed uh, English and, and uh, the social sciences, and so that's what I did. did an anthropology minor. And um, I, it wasn't until after I graduated that I again became entranced with science through public television shows about science, and one in particular caught my fancy. I had a, a different job. I had worked for um, a newspaper and a magazine, and I thought, wow, that's what I've always wanted to be. And well, it's not too late. Maybe by the time I'm 30, I could go for it. I could become a scientist. So mm. I kind of started all over again, and I met some very good people that were really supportive. And so I just, by the time I was 30, I was getting my PhD in physics. And so you, you mentioned seeing some some public shows about, about science. Um, when I was attending middle school, and I think for some time in high school as well, elementary school as well, um, the show that, that different science classrooms would show us and I think a lot of our listeners know about this as well, was um, it was Bill Nye the Science Guy. And I think that show sparked a lot of interest in, in science um, for, for the generation that I'm a part of. But I, I think there, there seems to be a shift away from um, 
maybe as much like public funding towards um, promoting the sciences in this way. Um, do you think there's there's a way that we can better introduce um, different scientific concepts or um, just make science more accessible to to the youth, whether they're um, from a marginalized community or not? Well, it's a, it's a really good question and observation, Nathan. I would say there are a lot of public television shows on science because I, I still watch them. Uh, and, uh, and I know a lot of the people uh, in my current job of uh, heading up a organization of foundations that are all focused on advancing science through philanthropy, I know that there's a lot of interest in doing even more in this area. Um, so I, I think there's there's no lack of, um, of interest and, um, and shows and all kinds of events, uh, big science fairs on huge scales and many local smaller scales. I think the, the real thing is that there's, there's just a lot out there to um, interest people. Mm -hmm. And now with, with all kinds of social media, um, it's just science has to fight for its place. And, and people have to come across it, pe young people, almost, you know, Accidentally, I, I don't know how intentional you have to be in order to find science programming, but but there is a, a, a lot of it, and I think of a of a very high quality as well. Mm. And so you mentioned um, like science has to find its place um, in fighting for like social media um, attention. There's just so many different things going on now, um, trying to take everyone's attention away. What would science's place be then in, in society? What, what do you think it most offers to, to our current generation? Well, uh, t there's two main places where it offers a lot and, and probably much, much more. But uh, I, I think of one place is definitely uh, inspiration. Uh, and, and that's what really attracted me to science when I saw that, wow, there's so much we don't know out there. And I'm an astrophysicist. And when I'd see programs about the cosmos and, and, uh, and stars and the, the evolution of, uh, of stars and galaxies and learn about things like dark matter, dark energy, and, and why some stars uh, at the end of their lifetimes explode and so forth. I, I just think that that's, that's fantastic uh, stuff out there that can really inspire people to pursue science in school. And then, then that pursuit would take people on in different directions. They could fall in love with microbiology or neuroscience or astrophysics, and there are so many different pathways. So, and and even if they don't, I, I think it's just really remarkable to learn more about this amazing universe that we live in and ask yourself questions. It almost, you know, borders on uh, religion in the sense that it's these are existential questions that people ask from time to time. Who am I? You know, how did I get here? What are my origins? What is the origin of the planet I live on and uh, the stars I see at night? So I, I think those are questions that a lot of people ask, theologians and, uh, and scientists. And, and the other thing um, about science that's much more down to earth is that it has so many um, applications 
to um, benefit us in the lives we lead. Whatever sphere we're working in or, or learning, playing in, having our households in. I mean, look at the, the cell phone, which is really the result of a lot of excellent scientific inquiry mm -hmm. and the technology that comes from that. And look at hospitals today, ever so much more they can offer you than they offered our parents, our grandparents. And um, and, and that is really progressing. I mean, look at our, our vaccines for, for COVID with this mRNA uh, technology. That is all based on some uh, incredible scientific discoveries. So that's another uh, place which is it, it very much the, na the nations that really uh, pursue science and um, educate people to become many different kinds of scientists will be way ahead in their economy and uh, their health, their national security, than the nations that don't. And, and the third area is in, in policy, that there are so many grand challenges that we face in this country and abroad, um, challenges from uh, pandemics and, and new pandemics on the horizon, which are sure to come, uh, challenges in food security, challenges in in research security, uh, challenges in uh, with the climate and the changing environment. Uh, and it just e everywhere you look on the planet, there are these very profound issues. And I believe that science just has so much con to contribute to the solution of those ch challenges. For sure. And that's just such a great insightful answer to, to my question as well. And um, so going um, and applying a bit to to the college that we're in right now. Um, I have a lot of uh, friends and classmates who are, I know they're either directly STEM majors or um, they have at least some interest in science. Like um, e even myself, I, I've always been fascinated by science, just reading like uh, popular mechanics, uh, National Geographic, just different aspects of, of the scientific world. Um, but it's not something that I can see myself really doing. Um, and I, I, you went to Stanford and you graduated with an English degree. Is is that right? Yes. Um, but from there, you were able to to go off into such um, lengths into the scientific community. Uh, would you be able to just talk a bit about um, that journey from from graduating with an English degree, and could you somehow relate it to um, uh, students on our campus who? are not entirely interested in science, but have some interest in it. Uh, do you think there's some way that um, someone could still major in in something like English or a degree that's not really seen as being as scientific now and still apply to um, a job in the sciences? Oh, a a absolutely. As I'm, I'm sure folks are aware, there are some fantastic science writers, right? And they make in incredible contributions mm -hmm. to the public understanding of science and to uh, really looking at the details of some of these broad challenges that I mentioned, what the issues are. So there's science writing and science journalism. There's also in, in your uh, intended profession and uh, your major's economics, Nathan, uh, the, there are some outstanding economists who have won the uh, Nobel Prize in economics 
for their dissection of the importance of science and technology to economic growth and development. And one, uh, Paul Romer, fairly recently, just a few years ago. Um, and that, that was, that's a very important insight and in, in contribution to make because as, as I said earlier, the, the nations that really recognize how science is tied to economic growth and therefore foster and encourage and um, uh, try to make sure there aren't many obstacles on people's pathways to doing science are, um, are, are really going to be ahead of nations that don't. And then, of course, in sociology, now we come to realize that there are so many cultural and social issues that face um, every every environment, including the scientific environment. And I've been really working on, on some of those issues that um, prevent or inhibit people from uh, once having chosen science as a career from staying in the career, things like implicit bias and, uh, and harassment in the field and so forth that can drive them away from science and working on solutions for those things. So I think no matter what profession you're in, you will be touched by science if for no other reason than you use a lot of the tools that scientific discoveries have produced. Like, like all of our professions today uh, really count on data in some way um, in order to, uh, to further our understanding. There are big databases no matter, no matter what uh, field that you've chosen to work in. And being able to explore that, um, computer uh, science is very, very prominent, active endeavor in uh, just about every uh, college in, in this country and abroad, and and so so science just touches so many different aspects of our lives. I mean, how would you even manage your your house without understanding how all these different devices work mm -hmm. in order to improve your living conditions? Yeah, for sure. And and even like right now, the, the podcast that we're recording, right. uh, just so much technology involved in making this happen. Um, and so, Dr. Cordova, I'd, I'd like to go back and um, uh, talk a bit about um, your your expressed interest in um, ethnography and um, your your interest in anthropology as well. Um, I, I saw I, in, in doing a bit of background research, um, you when you were a, a undergrad student at Stanford, you were doing postgraduate work um, in uh, for an anthropology professor. Is that right? Could you just talk a bit about that? Uh, sure. I I, I w wouldn't call it postgraduate work. I worked with other graduate students, so I really enjoyed my undergraduate anthropology classes. And one of my professors, John Hotchkiss, had um, he went every summer to Oaxaca in Mexico to, uh, and he took his graduate students there to do research. He'd put them in the different pueblos to do cultural anthropology. And uh, so I had applied for a Ford Foundation grant to go to South America to do anthropology fieldwork for, for four months of the summer. And when I got a grant, I, I told him about it. And he said, oh, you don't want to go to Peru. He said, you want to come to Oaxaca because on the weekends, 
Well, first of all, I can place you in a village in a Pueblo with the Zapotec um, Indians. Mm -hmm. And then on the weekends, you can uh, take a bus in and come and attend the classes that I have for the graduate students. And you can really learn how to put together a census and an ethnography of the village. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. And it was so as an undergraduate, I got to participate in that because that's what he did every summer. And um, and it was just one of the best experiences of my life. And so when I came back, I actually entered a writing, a national writing contest for women. And, um, and I wrote a little book about my experiences there. And I and I won. So I got to go to New York City and work for the magazine uh, for the summer after I graduated It was a Condé Nast publication. Uh, And so, so one thing just leads to another. So I always tell young people, I suggest, um, just if you have an experience, be sure you do something with that experience. Write a musical composition, write a book, mm-hmm. write, uh, take photography, do something with that, do a creative act following from the experience so you can in- encapsule the experience because you'll, you'll really enjoy that years later. But also it might actually by doing that, it might lead you on yet a different path. Mm-hmm. For sure. And yeah, I think I think having a uh, creative outlet is always really important. Um, uh, I, I'd love to just put a pin in, in creativity and touch on that um, after after this question that leads a bit off that last one. Um, I, I was just really interested in um, knowing how you applied um, um, your experiences gained through through that work in Mexico and just at Stanford in general with your um, anthropology classes. Have you been able to apply them to your work in astrophysics? In, uh, in some capacity. Yeah, well, well, certainly just writing, of course, uh, helps you tremendously because I've published a lot of papers and, and also I've had students who from other countries who um, in the beginning might struggle with how to write a paper and so on. And so I, I think that part has been really good. Mm. Um, there's always the, the side benefit that when you love literature and you read it for the beauty of the language, it is—it's like people who love Mozart or, or you know, or some or uh, rap music or whatever. When when there's some other form uh, that you um, that you take pleasure in, it really helps you also get through and pursue your and meet your challenges better mm-hmm. wherever they are. So when I was a graduate student. I really relied on on poetry to help me get through graduate school, even though the poetry was not about um, astrophysics or mm-hmm. anything to do with it. So, um, so I I think just keeping a life in balance and enjoying uh, different parts of your your brain and different inclinations is it's really important in having a healthy, satisfying life. Mm-hmm. I I really love that phrase, uh, enjoying different parts of your brain. That's that's really great, um, and. So to go back now to, to creativity, and you talked about it a bit more, um, I, I just wanted to know as well, um, w- how do you continue to be creative um, now that you're, um, I, I don't want to say like doing less work, but now that you're um, no longer uh, running the National Science Foundation, um, and especially given the, um, the ongoing pandemic, um, I, I think a lot of people who were just stuck at home, they were kind of forced to confront um, themselves in a way and uh, find ways to engage their minds. Um, and I just want to know, like, 
how do you continue to stay creative and what like creative outlets do you have? Great question. So one thing, I, I do have a full-time job as president of an entity called the Science Philanthropy mm. Alliance. And, and so that really uses part of my brain that loves organization and making progress and working towards goals uh, and all of that. But the, the pandemic, of course, was an extraordinary experience for, for everyone. And uh, one thing I did that um, I didn't have time to do before running all over the country and, and the world doing my uh, previous job was to to write more and uh, do creative writing mm. and so um, so I did write some things I'm I'm not sure they're worth publishing <laughs> or not but it felt that they they came out of a deep well of experience and concern within me and and I always hold it's good to have a a creative outlet for those kinds of experiences, whether or not it results in, uh, <laughs> you know, the the Booker Prize or something. Mm -hmm. You know, you you do it because you you feel you must, and there's such a pleasure in the act of uh, of doing it. You know, I imagine the people who compose music or sit at a piano and play it um, would have the same kind of experience that I have when I sit down and write. Mm -hmm. And something kind of going on on a different little route now um, is is there an ongoing scientific study that that really interests you? Something that seems uh, promising in some way to to the greater good of the world, or just something small that is really cool? There's so much that interests me. That's that's something that I just can't get out of my nature. That I just like. Um, I, I'm I'm in, intrigued by so many different aspects of science and that's why I love my present job because it covers all sorts of science from biomedicine to neuroscience to climate science to uh, physics and chemistry and geology and ocean science it, it's it covers a, a you know vast territory of, uh, of experience and discovery space um, when but your, your question may have wanted to probe something a uh, a little deeper about what what I really get excited about, and I I would say it has to be my my own field, my origins mm -hmm. in um, in astrophysics. So I am I, I pick up every article I can that has to do with um, experiments on on finding what is the nature of dark matter uh, or uh, dark energy. Uh, the 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 cosmos just has so many incredible big big mysteries and and I know they're not going to solve uh, our, our world's problems um, and and I'm still going to work on on those but but what carries my mind away and just lets me you know literally drift into outer space is thinking about um, about those questions of how the universe is, is really fundamentally put together and whether there are laws of nature, I'm sure there are that we don't yet understand. Mm -hmm. um, you're going going back a bit to something else. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember all of the, the context uh, revolving around this this question that I'd like to ask as well. Um, so forgive me if if I don't have all the facts remembered, but um, I, I remember there was, there was something I saw online um, where you said, um, it, it was in conversation with someone, um, 
at at some point you were offered something along the lines of of working as an astronaut i believe um as something in that field i i don't entirely remember i just i thought it would be sure. something else i could ask so about. so when i was in graduate school i worked for a professor at caltech who was uh, going to have an experiment on the the space shuttle, mm-hmm. and um, and that was at the time when the first um, women were being admitted as astronauts, and um, this professor and I had a, a a good relationship. I later, much later, ended up um, being his boss as head of the department at Penn State when mm-hmm. he moved from Caltech to Penn State. But anyway, he asked me at some point if he'd like if I would like for him to nominate me to be um, an astronaut because then they would take that seriously because mm-hmm. you're allowed to do that if you have an experiment. doesn't mean you get it or anything. You have a huge battery of tests and so forth to go through. Uh, but, but that he would do that for me, that he saw that I could um, potentially do that. And I just right away said I, I wasn't interested in that. Um, I, I think today we have a much different idea of what the astronaut program is than in those earlier days. To me, it seemed a deviation away from what I'd really struggled to become, which was a research scientist. Mm -hmm. I wanted to work on research, and I I didn't want to go and do uh, orbits around the Earth, Mm -hmm. you know, learning that particular skill set. And I didn't know where you'd end up after that. It seemed to me it would just take you out of your research trajectory, you know, becoming a, a professor at an institution and teaching and doing research and writing papers and making a discovery. And so, um, so it just didn't, it just was not appealing to me. Now I've seen, and I've had a number of friends who've been through the program, and then they go on afterwards and they become professors and mm-hmm. CEOs and all kinds of things. So it's a much different program than in the earliest days one could have imagined. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of two questions stemming from that, but the one I'd like to ask first is, um, you mentioned the um, your your belief or fear that there would be like a lack of um, research in, in, in what you wanted to continue studying um, if you were to accept or continue down that path of possibly becoming an astronaut. Um, but then later on um, in the 90s when the International Space Station was being developed, mm-hmm. uh, I remember you, um, I saw you were trying to push um, um, science experiments and just general science on the International Space Station. That's right. Um, how did that experience like um, when when your professor, uh, it was still your professor at the time, right? Uh, no, I, when I was doing the International Space Station. Oh, work, no, sorry, b- beforehand. Um, yes, right. Yeah, when when they were offering to, to nominate you to that position. Um, did that experience um, in any way affect the way that you were thinking about how the International Space Station should should be developed and what its role should be? No, no, it was far enough separated in time. I had a much different job. I was now NASA chief scientist at that time. Um, and then, uh, then afterwards, um, I was the chair of a, an organization that tried to attract more people to utilize the, the space station. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, an organization called uh, CASIS, 
which was um, uh, the Committee for the Advancement of Science in Space. And, um, and no, the, the goal was simply to um, utilize a very important asset in space and get more people interested in how they could use it. So that's really what I was focused on. In my days as, as chief scientist of, uh, of NASA, I, I, well, I just had a host of things to be concerned about. Um, the space station was just one of them and making sure that um, with the administrator that the flights were you know, all thoroughly checked out and, mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, but now that was very distant in time from my experience as a student. And, um, and, and of course, we were always concerned about the health of the astronauts and that also we were doing good health research with the astronauts in space. And now that time is sadly starting to, to run out a bit, just a few more questions I'd, I'd love to get through. Um, I, I think if, if you could just talk about a, um, what, what media are you consuming lately? Things like books, films, music, um, or is there something that you've you've gone back to recently, something from your past that um, you've you've enjoyed consuming again lately? Well, I I've always loved books. I mean, I I try to consume various forms of media, uh, but not be too directly engaged um, because you know I'd, I'd like I I have a Twitter account, I have a Facebook account, I have an Instagram account. I do not put my own stuff on those accounts, mm -hmm. but I I use them because family you know has them, and sometimes they'll say I posted yeah. this or that and and that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. no, I think for me it's always been about literature. I. It, I, I I read because I, I love language mm -hmm. and uh, I've I've been a student of languages, various other languages uh, going through uh, through college and beyond. And I I just think we're very lucky mortals that get to um, uh, get get to speak and, and learn how to think through speech and, um, and and learn through other languages how that, affects the way they uh, people talk and speak and communicate and and I I just feel extraordinarily enriched when I can read a book that is is very very well written and really pays attention to language and the beauty that you can draw out of it I can revel in it independent of what the story is mm -hmm. I just can revel in the language as if it were a beautiful painting or musical composition. Mm. And is there a particular book that comes to mind that, that kind of embodies that concept the most? Oh, there, there are so many. Um, actually, right now I'm reading a book on artificial intelligence because I just find it fascinating mm -hmm. that uh, a really super AI person uh, named Lee, Fukai Lee, has written a book with a writer who writes all these, uh, Chen, who writes all these stories to illustrate different concepts in artificial intelligence. And then Fukai Lee explains, um, uh, explains the, the science of artificial intelligence behind each story, but the mm -hmm. stories are very captivating. Brilliant way of presenting this to the public. And uh, the book is called AI to, uh, uh, 2041 because it takes place, it's sort of science fiction, it takes place 20 years from now. But um, no, I, I finished reading not too long ago, uh, Ishiguro, who's won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, his newest book is uh, called Clara. 
Um, uh, and um, it, it's also about artificial intelligence, actually. Mm. Uh, that, that will change the world mm. and will attract a lot of writers and, and others uh, to think deeply about how to utilize it. Um, so so that, those would be um, uh, a, a couple of books. But I'm also, uh, people who write books on black holes are always, they're asking me to write little uh, promos for it. And then they send me their books. So I'm, I have a number of books <laughs> about black holes now, too, on my desk. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing those, those reads with us. Um, and just as a, a kind of a closing question, um, what advice would you give to college students who are unsure about where they want to end up in life? Oh, that's such a great question. And I'm going to talk in, in my speech tonight uh, about that, give some advice. It's mostly directed towards um, undergraduate students. But I, I, I think you have to uh, be open to as many experiences as possible to see what you really resonate with. Because as in my example, I didn't really find my true passion or go back to a passion I had when I was a little girl until after college. So there's that. And, and I think the more that you, you are in touch with your own inner self, uh, the better off you'll be. I, I really like those words of uh, Shakespeare, to thine own self. Uh, be true. As as long as you you do that, um, I, I I think you you will find uh, the the path that was meant for you and that is about becoming you. And with that, unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Uh, thank you again so much, Dr. Cordova, for sitting down, and um, I, I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you, Nathan. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.